It's December, and the holiday season is upon us, though many may not be able to make the usual trips to see friends and family because of the pandemic. Have no fear! Here are five games that the 5i crew has reviewed that have excellent interfaces to play online through Board Game Arena. So fire up a Zoom meeting, FaceTime, or Google Chat, and play some games. Have a safe and healthy holiday, everyone! Hi, this is Sarah, and today I'm going to talk about Roll for the Galaxy. Roll for the Galaxy was designed by Wei Hua Huang and Thomas Lehman and published in 2014. As you might guess from the name, Roll for the Galaxy is a re-implementation of Lehman's popular 2007 game, Race for the Galaxy. In Roll for the Galaxy, players collect and roll colored dice. Lots and lots of dice, with custom symbols on each face and a colored plastic cup to roll them in. The dice determine which of five possible actions each player is able to take. In each turn, players assign their dice to actions behind private screens. You select one action to activate, then you place the rest of your dice under the actions they're assigned to. There are rules that sometimes allow you to turn a die to another face so you can focus on the actions you need more. Then everyone lifts their screen simultaneously and reveals their dice placement. But here's the thing. You selected one action. That means you get to use that action, and any other player does too if they had dice assigned to it. But when you select your one action, you also have to guess which actions will be selected by other players. If you can see what Kristen across the table really needs to do, and can guess she'll be selecting that action this turn, you can load up dice under that action and follow her. But if you guess wrong and no one selected that action, those dice were wasted. They go back in your cup for the next turn. The actions allow you to settle or develop, collecting dice on a tile until you can place it in your tableau, where it's worth victory points and may give you more dice or a special ability. Or you can produce goods, represented by dice naturally, on a previously placed tile, or ship the goods to exchange them for cash or victory points. Or you can explore, drawing new tiles out of a bag to be settled or developed on future turns. When any player reaches 12 tiles in their tableau, that turn is finished out and the game ends. There's a lot to love about Roll for the Galaxy. Simultaneous turns move the game along at a snappy pace with little downtime. Games are fairly short, about 45 minutes, but there are still good strategic decisions about which actions to focus on, which tiles to settle, and how to make use of their abilities. While there isn't much interaction in the take-that sense of messing with your opponents, I love the psychology of guessing which actions other players are going to select. The iconography is clearly explained on each tile, no need to memorize symbols, which in my mind is a huge improvement over Race for the Galaxy. And sitting at a table full of people all shaking cups full of brightly colored little dice, all thunking the cups down on the table at the same time, is just plain fun. It makes the game feel exciting and upbeat. For me, the best part of Roll for the Galaxy is how well it plays with two players. I play a lot of two-player games, and I find that many games are optimized for four, still good at three, but at two they often feel a bit flat. The board is too big, there's no competition for resources, we're each off on our own side of the map doing our own thing for the duration of the game. Two-player role for the galaxy is not like that at all. I've played it with all possible player counts, and at the high numbers, it's a very different game than at the low. At four or five players, someone else is much more likely to select the action you need. In fact, in a five-player game, it's not uncommon for all five actions to be selected. You know most actions will probably be available each turn, so you can ignore your opponents and focus on min-maxing, optimizing your dice, and racing to get the points first. At two players, available actions are much more scarce. The game adds a phantom player of a sort, 
a single die in a cup that you roll to select another action. But even with that, you're likely to get only two or even one available actions in a turn. Understanding your opponent becomes much more important. Figuring out what action they need, either to piggyback off their selection or to avoid selecting actions that will help them at a crucial moment. It feels much more tense. Roll for the Galaxy is the only 2-5 player game I've ever played that I would say is better at 2 than at 4 or 5. One concern about learning Roll for the Galaxy is that since dice are placed in secret, mistakes can be difficult to catch. When I first learned how to play, I made a small mistake in dice placement that made the game much harder for myself. I went on making this mistake over and over, with no idea I was doing anything wrong. Finally, I taught the game to someone with another experienced player at the table who noticed and corrected me. If not for that, I would have continued making the same mistake indefinitely. Like all games that are based on a limited number of tiles or cards, Roll for the Galaxy can start to feel stale when you've played it often enough to remember all the tiles. Fortunately, there's an expansion, Ambition, which adds some new tiles, two new colors of dice, and a couple of new mechanisms. Honestly, I would rather have just had lots more new tiles, but I'm happy for the additional content in the expansion. And it all fits in the original box. Roll for the Galaxy is a fun way to get a lot of strategy in a fairly short amount of time, a great game for those who don't think multiplayer solitaire is a dirty word, and just the thing for anyone looking to roll a lot of dice without worrying about critical hits and misses. And that's Roll for the Galaxy. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not shaking cups full of colorful dice, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. I love breaking out a simple classic game that is either so familiar that it doesn't require teaching, or so straightforward that it's quick to teach. Can't Stop has the potential to be both of those. Designed by Sid Saxon in 1980, it's older than anything else on my shelf, and it has stood the test of time. Can't Stop is published by Parker Brothers, Eagle Griffin Games, and many others, as there have been many editions released in different countries over the years. The artist for Eagle Griffin's 2011 edition is Gabriel Lalunen II. Can't Stop is a press-your-luck game that would make a great introduction to press-your-luck as a mechanism, second only to Cheeky Monkey in my book. The game is played on a big board. In many editions, it's a big hunk of red plastic. It has these vertical tracks numbered from 2 to 12 as you move left to right. These are the possible totals you could get from rolling two six-sided dice and adding the results. Lowest would be 2, highest would be 12. The object of the game is to move three of your pawns from the bottom of the board to the top. You do that by rolling four six-sided dice on your turn and pairing them up to add up to one or two totals. For example, if you rolled a 1, a 2, a 3, and a 4, you could move your pawns on 3 and 7, or you could pair them up differently to move up on 4 and 6, or move one pawn twice on column 5. The board is designed so that the most common totals in the middle of the range have more spaces on them. So you can try to move up a whole bunch of times on the 7 column, which is the tallest, or get a 2 or a 12 just a few times, or work on numbers in between. There are two things that can limit your progress on your turn. First of all, you only have three pawns, so you can work on up to three columns in a single turn. Second, as your opponents start to finish columns, those columns become unavailable to you. You can't advance on them or finish them. So, if everyone got the same number of die rolls on their turn, the game would wear pretty thin because the only thing players would be able to control is how they pair up their dice. But the rule that makes Can't Stop work is that you can roll as many times as you want, hence the name Can't Stop. 
However, should you ever roll a combination of dice that doesn't allow you to move on any track, your turn will end immediately and you'll lose all of the progress you made that turn. In order to keep your progress, you'll have to choose to stop and hand it over to the next player. What I like about Press Your Luck games like Can't Stop is that they allow you to easily adjust your strategy according to how other people are doing. If I feel like someone else is getting close to winning, I can take bigger risks in order to catch up, and if that fails, well, I probably wouldn't have won anyway. Can't Stop is a great light game where you don't have to pay a lot of attention during other people's turns, so if you're playing with people you haven't seen in a while and people are chatty, or if there's a TV or something distracting going on in the background, you're still going to be able to play. It's really approachable for family members and casual gamers who don't want to sit through a long rules explanation or commit to a two-hour game. Can't Stop is not text-dependent, so as long as people can read the dice, you should be good to go. I think it would be good for reinforcing math skills with kids since there is so much adding involved. It does rely on color to distinguish player markers, so if you have four players, you would have to look at green player markers against a red background. The main drawback of Can't Stop for most people is going to be the replayability. The replayability doesn't really compare to card games with variable setups or board games with variable player powers and so on. It's the same board, same concept every time. So you'd have to rely on your other games to give you that sense of variety. On the other hand, the press your luck mechanism does give Can't Stop a feeling of suspense. Is your friend going to go for the win and then bust? Will someone who has kind of fallen out of it be able to get back in? I feel like that excitement is a decent stand-in for the replayability and theme that other games can offer. The components are incredibly durable, and the game will either outlast you or you'll start losing pieces before the game actually fails on you. If your game group likes to eat lots of messy snacks, this is the perfect thing to pull out because you can't really hurt it by getting it dirty. You can play Can't Stop Online at Board Game Arena, and there's also an Android app called Can't Stop Dice that will roll your dice for you and give you the possible combinations. If you have the space on your shelf, Can't Stop is worth a place in lots of collections. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening! The lowest five blocks of downtown Seattle are built on fill. When the city was founded, the ground under Seattle's current waterfront was smelly, muddy tide flats. Sections of the city were a few stories lower than the current street level, and during the Seattle Underground Tour, you get to see former storefronts which are now buried basement levels. While the city has done its best to shore things up over the last hundred years or so, the filler upon which that part of the city stands is notoriously sketchy, and if one of the fault lines surrounding Seattle ever unleashes a massive earthquake, its likely liquefaction will just swallow that whole part of town. It's a long-standing tradition to side-eye the composition of your average hot dog. What worries people the most, it seems, is the idea that their favorite tube meat is primarily composed of stomach linings and eyeballs. In reality, the ground-up animal bits share almost equal space with fillers like cereal binder, so even bad meat isn't really all meat. Many products make a point of advertising they don't contain fillers, so you can be sure your quote-unquote all-beef hot dog is more hooves and intestines than flour and oatmeal. Fillers, in general, have a bad reputation. Even the word filler now implies something which simply takes up space without thought to consequence. At best, fillers are devoid of substance or value. At worst, they're potentially actively harmful. That idea has infiltrated the minds of board gamers to the degree that filler has become a pejorative. 
On the entitled gamer scale of value assessments, filler now occupies a low rung just above mass market and below gateway. This attitude is, frankly, absurd. Fillers, like any other style of game, fall on a spectrum from terrible, like Cards Against Humanity or Phase 10, to amazing, like Six Nimmed, a 1994 card game published by Amigo Spiel and designed by the always astounding Wolfgang Kramer. You know, the guy behind industry flops like the, the Mask Trilogy and El, El Grande. Six Nimmed is just two poker decks mashed together, numbered, weirdly, from 1 to 104. Each card also hosts a number of bullheads used for scoring. The purpose behind this particular aesthetic choice escapes me, but it doesn't really matter because these symbols could be anything, and this just happens to be what they chose. In a round of Six Nimmed, everyone is dealt 10 cards. Four cards are laid out on the table to start the rows into which everyone will play. On each turn, players place one card from their hand face down in front of them, then everyone reveals simultaneously. Those cards are then added to the face-up rows in numerical order following two rules. One, each card must be placed in ascending order in its destination row, and two, each card must be placed into the row with the smallest gap between it and the card at the end of the row. If you're forced to place your card in a row already containing five cards, you place all the cards in that row into your score pile and start a new row with the card you just played. You can also voluntarily scoop any row by playing a card lower in value than every present row, therefore having no legal placement at the end of an existing row. The kicker? You absolutely don't want cards. The object of Six Nymphed is to keep your score low. At the end of each round, when everyone's played all 10 of their cards, everyone counts up the bullheads in their score pile, adding that total to their running score. The game ends when any player accumulates 66 points, and the player with the lowest score wins. The simultaneous play and ascending initiative order in Six Nymphed require careful planning each round, not only of the card you play, but of what's left in your hand and how they all relate to the board state. Is the gap between your card and that row of four small enough that another player won't sneak in between and force you to scoop the row? When does it make sense to dump a super high value card to effectively cap a row? Is this the right moment to play my four and scoop a low bullhead row, taking that small point hit to avoid a larger one? At every turn, the board composition feels like it's screwing you over. And if it doesn't, rest assured somebody will play a card to make sure it does. It's a game filled with cries of son of a and aw, screw you, Daryl, punctuated by those miraculous rounds where you score zero in the face of everyone else's 20s and 30s. The tension is riveting, the highs are elating, and the lows are hilarious rather than punitive. Although it's ostensibly a filler, after a few plays, Six Nymphed reveals surprising layers of strategic crunchiness. At the start, I lost a lot of games. Then something clicked and I just got it, making it a game I'll play any time on its own merits. The derision of fillers baffles me. In board games, the word filler is intended to define a shorter game used to fill the time between longer, more complex ones. Alternately, they're used to ramp up or wind down a game night. The negative connotation is born of insidious elitism, driving the idea that fillers aren't worthy of our time. That idea is built on the same careless, shaky foundation as Seattle's waterfront, and Six Nymphed is the earthquake that sinks it. My name is Luke, and you can find my analogies breaking down on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! 
Hello, Five by listeners, it's Ruth here, donning my Slytherin scarf and Hufflepuff sweater despite the summer heat. You see, wizarding schools have earned a special place in many people's hearts, including mine, thanks to Harry Potter and similar stories. Various tabletop games have used this type of setting in the 20-some years since The Philosopher's Stone was released in 1997, and one such game is Potion Explosion from Cool Mini or Not, published in 2015. The game is set in a potions classroom where players attempt to prove themselves the best student brewer. Designed by Lorenzo Silva, Andrea Crespi, and Stefano Cristelli, this is a charming quick-playing game that's sure to draw attention thanks to both the whimsical art of Julia Gigni and the unique way players will be gathering their ingredients. The game is specifically set during the potions class final exam, and so players must race to earn points by impressing the professor with perfect potions. He offers additional rewards for both consistency and variety, giving ribbons to students who successfully brew sets of matching potions or a larger set of different concoctions. In order to create their potions, students follow recipes using some or all of four different ingredients in various quantities. These are picked out of a dispenser in the middle of the table. The dispenser has five channels down which ingredients in the form of colored marbles roll. Should a student pull an ingredient and cause two or more matching ingredients to touch, well, they get to take those ingredients as well. Should removing these ingredients cause another collision of matching ingredients, well, they get those as well. That's right. Potion Explosion uses marbles rolling down shoots to provide a real-life working implementation of a match-three game. And it's not just a gimmick. Players can carefully set up combos to grab as many marbles as possible in order to finish up their potions quickly and efficiently, as when all of those extra point ribbons are gone, the game's over. But the potions you're brewing in Potion Explosion aren't just worth points towards your final grade. They can also be drunk for in-game effects, helping players complete impressive turns by breaking the rolls. When setting up the game, players select six of eight possible potion types to use, providing a selection of special actions. These can either be randomly selected or chosen carefully to be more or less complicated depending on the player's familiarity with the game. You can pull off some really satisfying turns by spotting the perfect marble cascade by drinking the right potion at the right time, or by doing both of those things at once. Those aha moments of spotting the perfect move make players feel really clever, and they more than make up for those other turns where you stare at the dispenser, ignoring the player next to you as they smirk and watch you try to figure out what great move they can see and you can't. This is a game that new people tend to want to play again in order to see what the other potions do, and it's so much fun that I'm more than willing to oblige. Not to mention the combination of the satisfying click-clack of marbles coming together and the groans that you get when you steal someone's marbles. Well, it's a really good soundtrack for a game night. Now, the initial assembly of the punchboard ingredient dispenser can seem intimidating, but it's actually only a one-time event, as the box has been designed to hold it once it's put together. The two-page spread showing the steps for construction are very well done and have a number of callouts mentioning times you might want to take extra care. In fact, the rulebook overall has clearly been laid out with an eye to avoiding any stumbling blocks that might stop players from getting started, and Heiko Gunther's graphic design is wonderfully clear. I was 
able to put the dispenser together fairly easily, although one piece sometimes comes a little loose when I lift it. I'll likely add a little glue to it, but so far it's been solid enough that I haven't bothered. Once assembled, the dispenser is an impressive centerpiece, and I was actually even more impressed when I noticed that you can have one of two different styles of dispenser depending on which side of the punch board you face out. You could either have a pristine, nice new dispenser, or one that's been left worn and cracked by generations of student use. As I mentioned, the box has a well-designed insert that lets the dispenser fit into it fully assembled. The rulebook also has a very nice diagram that details how to fit everything back into the box safely so you can make sure it all stays where it's supposed to be. In addition to a great insert, the box also had a small bag of replacement marbles so that having one of your ingredients roll under the couch doesn't mean your game is now unplayable. These are small details, but they're the kind of details I really appreciate when I'm opening up a new game. Overall, Potion Explosion is a great production, components and art together. And while I've seen aftermarket laser cut dispensers, I'm actually not willing to give up the charming appearance of the one that comes in the box, even if I do need to glue it together. What you get in the box, as well as that great dispenser, is a really fun physical implementation of a Match 3 video game. Potion Explosion is relatively easy to teach to inexperienced gamers, but it still retains enough interest and sheer fun for more seasoned or jaded players, so it's an excellent addition to game night, and it's a game that I am not getting rid of anytime soon. I highly recommend trying the base game if you get an opportunity, and I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on the expansion to see exactly what it has to add. So until next time, when I'm not creating strange smoking concoctions, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. When starting a podcast, a lot of consideration must be given to the name. And while technically accurate, we quickly decided that naming our show the Phil Walker Harding Fan Club was too long of a name, so we went with the five by. Given that everyone on the show is a self-professed Walker Harding fan, I'm a bit surprised that Sushi Go has gone this long without being covered, likely due more to its age and ubiquity in the market rather than any lack of worthiness. Sushi Go was originally released back in 2013, and many of us have our game right copies sitting awkwardly on our game shelves in its odd-shaped tin. Sushi Go makes for an excellent introduction to both Walker Harding games, but also to card drafting. In Sushi Go, we are allegedly at a conveyor belt sushi restaurant, trying to have the best meal. This is simulated by everyone having a starting hand of cards. They pick one, and then pass the rest of the player on their left. And then everyone reveals what they've picked to the whole group. Then they can look at the hand that was passed to them, and repeat the process, until all the cards from that hand have been played. And I have to admit, from the standpoint of mechanisms to theme consistency, it works even down to the use of the chopstick cards to take an extra dish from the hand you currently have, simulating some extra reach gain by using those chopsticks. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Once the final cards have been played, that round is over, and it's time to see who ate the best. The obvious way to tell if you've had the most satisfying meal of sushi is of course by scoring up what you've had each round. Each card gives you a certain number of points, and many work together for more points. Sashimi is delicious, but not very filling, so you have to eat three dishes of it to get that really nice full feeling for 10 points. Nigiri is certainly more filling and worthwhile on its own, but if you pair it with wasabi, now that's even better. Tempura shrimp are so good that you're obviously going to want two orders. 
And while of course you won't dream of eating that pudding until the end of the meal, you should probably grab it now because who knows if there will be any later. Once everyone has scored their meal so far, you wipe the plates clean, so to speak, except for the puddings which are saved for the end, and play continues for two more rounds played exactly the same. Sushi Go is both a tactical and strategic game. You know what your starting hand is, and you know it'll come back around to you. What are the odds, based on what you've seen, that you'll be able to get all three sashimi that you need to score those 10 points for an average of 3.3 points per card? Or should you grab the wasabi you have in the hopes that a squid nigiri comes around for 9 points or an average of 4.5 points per card? Based on what the others are doing, should you get in the maki race for 6 points? But if it takes you 3 cards to win, that's only 2 points per card played. These are usually the things I'm considering when looking at my first hand and deciding how to proceed, then tactically deciding based off of later hands how I want to further my game. Speaking of looking at my hand, the art is adorable. I just try not to think too much about the cute smiling sushi pieces that I'm theoretically about to eat. While what your opponents are taking and doing certainly affects how your game goes, this is not really a direct conflict game which makes Sushi Go an excellent gateway game that usually doesn't end with hurt feelings. And the simple rules also make it an excellent introduction to drafting. But what if you want... more? Well, as luck has it, Sushi Go Party was released back in 2016. This is a much larger, and yet still sadly tin, box version of the game, with many different cards you can add in. The cards are organized around certain types like rolls, appetizers, desserts, and specials. There's also now a special scoreboard with score markers and chits to slot in to fill out the deck properly and to let everyone know what the special abilities are for each card type. Sushi Go Party is certainly a the same but more type of expansion for anyone who has grown tired of regular Sushi Go, but I never intend to get rid of my original Sushi Go deck as it's much more portable and while Party gives you tons of options and suggested setups, you still have to select and mix the cards before playing and then separate the cards back into their different types for storage, neither of which are great when you want a fast game while waiting for a meal. A Sushi Go Party is the perfect game for a game night when you want to either experiment with different options or to use one of the heavier or meaner suggested decks with your friends. So that's Sushi Go, and to some extent Sushi Go Party, a light, quick, fun, introductory drafting game that works great with families and gamers, and it's bigger but more flexible, heavier, and sometimes meaner sibling. I personally feel both are great and will gladly keep both. As for which I would recommend, I guess it depends on what you're looking for. Given the low price point, I don't see how you could go wrong with either, but it is a game that I feel most gamers should own. If you have any further questions or comments about Sushi Go, you're welcome to reach me on Twitter at MikeRizzly. You've been listening to The 5 By. We're a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 By Games. Friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on your podcast app of choice. Please consider supporting our work on Patreon at patreon.com slash 5 Thanks for listening.